This week's episode of the Vel News Podcast brought to you by Health IQ. That is the life insurance company that caters to health conscious people like runners, vegans, cyclists. Spencer, did you ride your bicycle much over the winter holiday? Fred, don't you remember we went for a ride together? Oh I my thought God. that was a special holiday memory that you would cherish forever. It was such a cold ride. I think my brain froze and froze part of the memory from it. Uh, I'm just now thawing out, and that was a week ago. Well, it's kind of your fault because you did some bonus secret miles after I went home. Well, that's true because I'm a health conscious individual, which means I'm a perfect customer for Health IQ because Health IQ has found that they can great, give great rates on life insurance to healthy people like us. Right now, they have a special deal for fans of the Velo News podcast. Yeah, that's right. Go to healthiq.com slash Velo News. Get a free quote on life insurance. It's easy. It's quick. Healthiq.com slash Velo News. And uh, make sure to get those secret training miles in. Make sure you wear your gloves, people. Stay warm. Oh, on with the show. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer here with Spencer Paulison. It is the first Wednesday after the New Year's, first Wednesday of 2018. I am still thawing out because I went on some really cold rides over the winter break. We hope everyone had a great Christmas and holiday. Spencer, what did you get up to over the holiday break? We haven't seen each other in a while. That's true. I stayed close to home here and did a bit of riding. I'm going to actually go out to cyclocross nationals in a week or so here. So have to kind of stay on the bike a little over the holidays. Can't eat too many cookies. Wait, so you weren't just like cramming down cheese and chocolate to get ready for cross nets? Well, I was, but I do need to, you know, get out right after I do that. So it's, it's usually a little uncomfortable, but do the best I can. So here's a question. Are you competing in the master's category at cross nationals? Because that may throw off our credibility for all our hot master's cross nets takes. Oh yeah. Let's let's not go down that road again. I'm going to do the single speed race, but also I will be covering the race for Vela News, tracking down all the top cross racers of the the U.S. out there in Reno, Nevada, America's biggest little city or something. Is that what Biggest little city in, we the wor- in the world? Well, I'm looking forward to going to the sports, sports book, uh, betting on the ponies. Um, I don't know, maybe take the over on some NFL playoff games. We'll see. Awesome. Well, listeners, if you are going to cross Nats and you have some takes on Masters Cross Nationals in general, just track down Spencer. I'm sure he's all ears. I had a pretty fun break, went skiing a couple times. And guys like you, Spencer, you're into like backcountry skiing with your backcountry gear. Go get gnarly in the backcountry. I am a tried and true lame resort skier. I like having the ski lift take me to the top of the mountain where then I can use gravity and little effort to take me down to the bottom of the hill. I got to say, though, resort skiing over the Christmas holiday is such a crap show because of all of the uh, out-of-towners who show up here in Colorado. Now, look, I'm a snob. I'm a lifelong Coloradan. I've been going to these ski resorts my whole life. I know how to get on a ski lift. I know how to go down the hill without just yard sailing everywhere. But I got to say, oh, man, I saw so many, like, Jerry of the Day applicants in my few days going up to the resorts this past week. Well, you should have, uh, you know, videoed some of them and sent them in. You could... uh Get a job as a freelance contributor for Jerry of the Day. It's probably not a bad idea to have a little backup plan with the way things are going with cycling. Well, it's like, come on, all you nice people from California in the Midwest. It's a ski lift. Like, just like, just follow the person in front of you. And when the ski lift goes by, then you can go out and get on it. Um, Hey, I did have a question for you about that. What's that? This is a cycling podcast, Uh, isn't it? I thought it was, right? (laughs) Yeah, well, really fascinating to hear about your skiing over the Christmas break, I know, break, Fred, the but we got to get into it. we got to get into it just want to know about your training for cross nets and my ski adventures. So we're going to go get into it. We have a fun show 
this week, we're going to talk about one of the key matchups for 2018 and why we're so excited about it. We're also going to talk about a feature story that I did for the current issue of Vela News Magazine. Well, the upcoming issue of Vela News. That's the Jan Feb issue. Should be hitting newsstands very soon. Pretty soon. But before we get to all of that... Oh my gosh, we have some amazing news, some breaking news, and just a really great heartwarming story for listeners of the Velenews Podcast. And that is we have added a new member to the Velenews team, and he is here on the line all the way from Washington, D.C. It's Dean Cash. Yay, Dean. Heartwarming. Man, you're really uh, setting me up with a high standard here. I hope I can I hope I can live up to that. I brought hot takes to this, but I don't know if I brought, brought anything heartwarming. Yeah. That's good. We appreciate all volcanic takes. But, Dane, this is something of a crossover episode because you are coming to us from uh, a background in cycling journalism, and you have your own cycling podcast, and we're – tell, tell the good listeners about a, a bit about your background with cycling. Sure. Yeah. I, mean, I got into covering cycling, uh, I guess, three or four years ago now. I, st- I started up a website, which it, it was a blog. I kind of hesitated to call it a blog at the time because I think of the, of the connotations that go along with that. But I mean, hey, now I'm, I'm a full-time cycling reporter, so I guess I don't have anything to worry about it. It was a blog. I, I would preview bike races uh, and make some prognostications uh, on, on bike racing. And I, I've continued to do that all, all through my career, uh, previewing and I uh, did that via written previews and also uh, via podcasts. Uh, and have since sort of developed into a more complete cycling journalist. And, and uh, I, I got my start actually working for a legitimate outlet uh, called Velo News. Mm, heard of it, heard uh, of it. Yeah, I don't know if you guys have heard of them. Uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, worked there for... <laughs> <laughs> Worked about worked as an editor and, and a contributor for for about two years uh, before joining a let's call it a rival publication for uh, twelve months, and, and now luckily I'm I'm back on board with with Velenus. That's great, and I'm glad you didn't say the c word. We don't want to bring yeah, that up, but, there, but you're yeah. welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome to give your own blog a plug if you want. We'll give you a chance. You can plug it if you want. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. The, the blog that I've worked so hard on for all those years is, is called Velo Human, which I recognize is a little confusing considering that I'm working for Velo News uh, now. But I think my output will be mostly uh, directed towards Velo News from here on out. So I wouldn't worry too much about uh, about checking out Velo Human uh, from this from this point on. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, you can go from being a blogger in your mom's basement to being a professional cycling reporter for Velo News. Yeah, I'm, I'm living all proof. you have you can to do, do all those things. That's right. <laughs> yeah. It's a real American dream yeah, story. That is a hardworking story. Pulling up yeah. yourself by your bootstraps. By so your pajama, kind of. by your PJ bottom, uh, yeah. Or by, well, your, by your boa dials or whatever the equivalent is. Well, Dane, we're psyched to have you aboard. Before we get to today's most pressing topic, though, Dane... Gotta ask you, what's your spiciest, hottest, most flaming volcanic take on the sport of bike racing from 2017? Because I think that in order for the good listeners to like really wrap their heads around who you are, they need to know some, you know, what your most inflammatory opinion from 2018 was. (laughs) Oh man, that's a great way to start off and and make sure uh, I'm getting people on my team and, and liking me as I... As I get through my first week here. Well, you know, there's a lot of talk this week on Twitter about Fabio Aru's uh, national championship jersey. He's, of course, the reigning Italian national champion. Uh, and just a, a lot of hubbub on, on Twitter because there's just not a whole lot else to talk about how, about how bad his jersey is. And it really is. It's, it's pretty poor design. It's, it's just weak. It doesn't really display the Italian flag very much. And, and I'm on board with all that. I, this is not a very hot take that it's a bad jersey. My, my hot take would be does it doesn't really matter because I, I just don't see Fabio Aru 
uh, up there among the big tour contenders right now. Ooh, and and good, uh, for me, very good point. Very good point. Ooh. He's a good rider, and, and and I like him. I like the the. I like what he brings to sport. Yeah, does it really matter about how bad his jersey is at this point in time? Because, look, Chris Froome, if he doesn't get banned for Salbutamol, which could certainly happen, I think he's going to continue dominating. And here's a small hot take. I think he'll dominate no matter what what team he's on. I think he's going to continue dominating, uh, assuming he's still riding next year. Uh, and if not Chris Froome, then you've got Nairo Quintana, you've got Tom Dumoulin, Mikel Landa. So, uh, yeah, I think Fabio Aru's jersey is terrible, but my real hot take here is that uh, I just don't really see him factoring much in the, in the Tour de France discussion unless he can can make some changes in his in his uh, approach. Good point. Um, singed my eyebrows with the Aru jersey take, um, especially because the original jersey they came up with, I think the Italian tricolor or the Italian flag is like the size of his belly button. What's going on there? Come on, give us the full Neapolitan like. Yeah, last uh, year's was good. That last year's, last year's was, was good. Just spicy. Stick with, stick with like the that. yeah. Stick. Just keep it simple. Yeah. I, I will say it's probably tough for whoever is designing it, uh, kind of meshing the Italian tricolor because those colors are already on the jersey, so it's it's a tough thing for them to make it stand out well we're not designers we are just guys talking into microphones dane your take about chris Froome continuing to dominate the tour no matter what team he is on as if he is able to race that is fairly lukewarm that is bathwater take material it's cool you're new to the podcast we will work on that going forward to add a little spice to those takes but i did like the Fabio one okay let's get to it guys you know, this coming year, we have so many great matchups to follow in the sport of cycling. In women's cycling, we have Anna Vanderbregen versus Bulls Dolman versus everyone. In Grand Tours, we have Tom Dumoulin versus Chris Froome. But the, the big matchup that I think we, we should get to today is looking at the classics and re-examining an old favorite, which is Peter Sagan versus Greg Van Avermaet. Now, this was a big rivalry we had our eyes on in 2017. And can we just definitively say that Greg Van Avermaet totally won? I mean, well, and without the, a doubt Yeah, won. and the rivalry basically fizzled before it even got off the ground due to the crash, Tour of Flanders, due to the flat tires of Paris-Roubaix for Peter Sagan. Disappointing. Reminded me a little of some of the years past when we were expecting a big matchup between old Fabian Cancellara and Tom Bonin. And one of them would always, like, crash and Perry niece or something stupid would happen and then it would just never be that that real key rivalry matchup that we just know and we love and we want to see in these classics races and maybe this is the year so so let's get into this rivalry Sagan versus Van Avermaet 2018 there's a couple different wrinkles and changes from last year there's more pressure on these guys I think though a good place to start is looking at the old calendar Ooh, uh, ooh, uh, the calendar to look at the various races where these guys are going to be matching up. So right now we have Het Nusblad, Kern Brussels Kern, Strada Bianca, Milano San Remo, E3 Haralbeke, Gendwevelgem, Dwar's Door, but nobody cares about Dwar's Door, the Tour of Flanders, and Pajarupe. So that is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine battles for us to sink our teeth into. Way to count. I know. It's great, great radio doing our podcast in here. <laughs> Dane, when you look at Greg Van Avermaet versus Peter Sagan 2018, what is the top line story that you think is sort of the most, is going to drive this rivalry? Well, I think the Tour of Flanders and the buildup to the Tour of Flanders is the, the big story to follow, the, the big thing to watch this classic season, because uh, I think... I don't think Sagan is going to be among the top. Well, I don't think he's going to be among the top two favorites, at least for the for Paris Roubaix. And I don't think Greg Van Avermaet is going to be among the top 
five favorites for Milan Sanremo. So Flanders of the three monuments and you know in the Cabo Classics that these two guys are going to be vying for. Flanders is the big one, and, and Flanders is what they're going to be building up to. And specifically for Van Avermaet, Flanders has been the focus really of his career. Uh, and I think Sagan is going to really be hoping to get back on top of that Flanders podium. It is still the one monument he's won. So for me, it's it's that race, and it's the build up across the the Flemish classics to getting there and and to you know combating each other in that race. Especially since last year we were kind of robbed of an opportunity to see them going head to head by a, a wayward piece of clothing on a barrier. And, and I do think, you know, the storyline coming out of last year's Classics, as you as you pointed out, is that Van Avermaet dominated. And I think he has the edge going into this Classic season because of that. So I, I do think Sagan is very talented and, and could change that. But that's that's the edge, I think, is in Van Avermaet's corner for now. I think Van Avermaet definitely has the edge, but I think Sagan has the added pressure. One of the questions that I have coming into this year is, okay, yeah, Sagan, we were robbed of the rivalries at Roubaix, and I guess we could say we were at Flanders, although I still say that that was Sagan's fault. If you're riding that close to the barriers, you're gambling, and anything that comes your way is your own fault. A wayward cardigan, for A instance. wayward cardigan can take you out. But when you look at the other races, namely gent and E3 Arlbecca, and even Het Nusblad, these were races where Peter Sagan made critical errors at the wrong moment that allowed Greg Van Avermaet to win. At Het Nusblad, it was kind of riding like a ding-dong in that breakaway, wasting some energy, like shifting off the back and then starting his sprint too late. At Genwevelgem, it was letting the door open when Nicky Terpstra decided not to take a pull. So it was sort of these critical... These, these critical mistakes and errors that were made from a tactical standpoint. And Van Avermaet, meanwhile, rode with this pincer-like efficiency of you know not taking too long a pull, not pulling when he needed to, and then waiting till the very last minute to start his sprint to win all these races. And the, I guess the big story I'm looking to see in 2018 is whether Sagan is going to tighten it up, man. Is he going to like... Is he going to trim the hair? Is he going to be the cool, calculated rider that Van Avermaet was last year? I definitely agree with you, Fred. It was a kind of a comedy of errors this spring for Peter Sagan, and nobody likes to see that when you have the top favorite, the world champion. Who knows? Maybe he just had a couple of mental lapses. He's proven that he can race with a cool head. Look at how he won in Bergen, Norway at the world championships. That was just a nail-biting finish where he just waited until the very final moment to make that winning sprint. I think he's fine when it comes to his mental state, when it comes to his focus and patience. And above all, I think he's now got one of the key teammates uh, of of any Classics uh, squad, and that's Daniel Oss, who's moved over from BMC, Van Avermet's team, to Bora Hansgrohe, Sagan's team. So that's a big change. I think you could argue that Greg Van Avermet would not have won Paris-Roubaix if it hadn't been for Daniel Oss. I think Daniel Oss's role in that late breakaway and the final 60-odd kilometers or however long it was, that was essential. That's that's probably one of the big reasons why Van Avermet won that. And then if you've set that race aside, consider Van Avermet's other wins in the springtime. Yeah, great wins, but he's not going to be able to hide in the wheels forever. People know that he can win these big races. They know he's got that sprint. And I don't think they're going to be as keen to let him play these tactical games in 2018 and beyond. Yeah, I mean, Dane, are, are we going to be seeing more riders like tow Greg Van Avermet to the line this year? Or do you think guys are going to be seeing that they're in a move with him and just say, Psh, 
no way, man. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait for the cavalry. I know that you're just going to have your veins filled with ice and not start your sprint until 100, 100 meters to go. You know, I think, uh, I think Sagan and Van Avermaet both have this problem. I, I think it's actually worse for Sagan than for, for Van Avermaet. Despite Van Avermaet's success, Sagan's the one in the rainbow jersey, and he's always had this problem. And I think as long as Sagan is on form, it actually kind of benefits Van Avermaet because when Sagan is on form, people are, I think, more concerned even about Sagan. And when they see that shiny rainbow jersey, they're going to be more focused on trying to get into his wheel. So I actually think... That, uh, that Sagan's the one with a bigger problem and that Van Avermaet can generally rely on uh, Sagan being the one uh, taking that attention uh, and can kind of use that to his advantage. And, and maybe with another classic season of dominating, Van Avermaet will be the one that is getting more of that attention. But I think for now, it's, it's still Sagan getting that a little bit more. You know, getting back to the us question, I think that is a good point you raised. And that speaks to a bigger point around these two riders, which is that, you know, Greg Van Avermaet's BMC team, this could be its final year of existence. Um, they have been not shy in uh, letting people know that they're searching for sponsors and they're searching for ways to survive. And I do wonder if that puts extra emphasis on Van Avermaet to have a good classics campaign, knowing that, you know, this is his final year with this team. He could be racing for and added a, a bump in salary or, you know, a team to be built around him or his own team's survival next year. I mean, the whole reason Aust left was because BMC couldn't guarantee him more than a one-year deal. Plus, and if you look at the BMC roster for 2018, to me, I'm not seeing anyone who quite has that pedigree as a true classics workhorse who can be there in the final to help Van Avermaet and Perry Bay and Tour of Flanders and any of those. I mean, yeah, uh, Dylan Toons, really good rider. Maybe he would be the guy. I don't know, though. I mean, there's there's not a whole lot of names that jump out at me right away. I don't know if you see any other names on that roster, Dane. Yeah, I think Jempy Drucker, a Jean-Pierre Drucker, is, is a guy that you can watch to maybe try to step into that role. I think People have kind of been expecting him to do that for a little while now. You know, he's already uh, over 30, and I think there were a couple of years ago people were talking about him as one of the next big classics guys. He hasn't quite lived up to that, but he has had some of his own results. He's a talented rider, uh, so I think that's the guy that they're going to be hoping uh, can step up. But as you pointed out, I don't think anybody quite matches Daniel Oss, at least in terms of Palmares and, and what Oss has been able to accomplish in his career. A little more of a climbing GC-oriented team on the whole, Definitely. I would say. Well, that's no wrinkle because the uh, criticism that we always had for Sagan coming into these classics races was that, ah, he's the one-man wrecking ball. You know, he doesn't have any team built around him. You know, his team has always been, even when he was on Tinkoff, it was like, oh, he's co okay, he's got Oscar Gatto. And last year it was like, okay, he has like, you know, some of these uh, Eastern European guys um, who are strong but don't have the same pedigree. I guess he had Marcus Berghardt. He's got too. his brother. Yeah. Brotherly love. You're a... I can't forget Jura. You're a... But, you know... Having Oss there, that's like a grade A lieutenant. But I do wonder how they're going to handle the duties. I mean, is it like, does Oss get a chance to fly like he did at Roubaix? Or is he just towing the group back? Mm, yeah, I think he's, I think he's first and foremost a, a, a worker bee for, for Sagan. But maybe he'll have his chance. What's the hairstyle going to be for Oss this year? Good question. Yeah, that's the most important question for sure. It is. It really is. I mean, he's going to this, this team where the star is a noted uh, long hair lover. Yet he has. Uh, I'd expect us to step up his hair game even more with Sagan around. Yeah, I, I also wonder if he's going to step up his team picture game because, as we all know, last year's BMC t Daniel Oss team picture was amazing. There was smoke, there was mood lighting. Uh, I think he had his he had the bike held like it was some type of guitar, like he was just a shredding axe man from like an eighties. He looked hair like metal he belonged band. in Sticks, the band. Yeah. 
That's the Daniel Oss we want to see. Well, another question I have is, what are going to be the most important, the most important uh, initial battles for these guys. You know, I've always liked Strada Bianca because it comes early. Obviously, there's the dirt, but you do get guys on varying levels of form. Really on trend, on trend with the gravel trend. Yeah, it's everyone true. likes gravel. Oh man, they're gonna be wearing, uh, they're gonna be wearing their their fanny packs with their big fat tires. Yeah, I wonder this year. Neither guy has ever won this race. Both GVA and Sagan are winless at Strada Bianca. And I wonder if that will persuade either one of these guys to really make it an A-level a race for them. Ah, well, it's not, a, it's not a monument. It is a world tour race. I think, I think they'd be very happy to win it, but um, I'm sure that overall their training schedule has them more focused on a peak for Flanders, which comes you know, almost a month later. Yeah, I think I agree. I think they'd both be thrilled to win Strada Bianca, but... Yeah, I think, you know, the amount of questions they get regarding when are you going to win this or that monument, I think it's got to, they have to trump Strada Bianca. Ooh, here's a Strada Bianca question for you then. Strada Bianca or Het Nusblad? What we, what, what's more important? Hmm. I would say Het Nusblad. I, I think it's a closer prep for Flanders, and I think that's the main priority here. So that's got to be the, the main target. What? No way, man. Strada Bianca. I'd rather have that race. Ah, uh, but the Het Nusblad is, it's it's in Belgium. I think that you can't you can't deny the fact that there's, uh, added media attention to it simply because it's in cycling's heartland and it's part of that really frenetic build-up to the classics. Ah, Strada Bianca is a great race, yeah, but I don't think it's the same. But Het Nusblad, there's like Kern, Brussels Kern the next day, the E3 Harlp. I mean, there's all these sort of like second-tier Belgian cobbled races. They all sort of blend together in my mind. That, you now, know. now, if you'd say Dwarf's Dorf Vlanderen, then I would say Strada Bianca. Well, I would also, say Strada Bianca over they blend together in Greg Van Avermaet's head. I mean, if, if you were... Uh, a Flemish rider thinks might be a little different. Or in the Completely. head of just your typical Flemish person. Who, or that, yeah. I have said before, the typical man on the street in Flanders knows way more about pro cycling than um, oh, yeah. your typical American cycling journalist. Well, no, maybe maybe we outrank them a bit. Depends on how many uh, duvels they've had. Yeah, that's true. What about Pyre in general? I mean, are we, you know, Dane said, you said before that you don't see uh, Peter Sagan as even like, one of the top, top, top favorites for that race. I mean, does uh, Oss going to his team change that? What do we see the dynamics of Perry roubaix this year, especially knowing that no more Tom Bonin and Quickstep obviously wanting to, to do well there too? I'd love for him to prove me wrong. I, mean, I, th- I thoroughly enjoy seeing Sagan win races. It's fun to see him win races the way he rides and, and celebrates, but I do not think that his skill set is quite as perfectly tailored to Roubaix. I mean, I think one of the things that makes Sagan as strong as he is is his ability to climb. Uh, and, and I don't know if you've seen the pair Roubaix profile, but there are not a lot of climbs on that profile. And, and I think uh, it's just not a race that is quite in his wheelhouse the way that uh, Flanders or a number of other races are. And I think Van Avermaet has proven that, that he can win Roubaix and, and has what it takes to win Roubaix. Not, not so for Sagan. You know, and, and even with Oss on the team, I just don't think Sagan gets to use his powers quite as well for, for Roubaix. Right on. Well, this rivalry is going to get kicked off pretty soon. Peter Sagan, he has the Tour Down Under coming up next week. Then apparently he's going to Sierra Nevada in Spain to do his usual early season climbing training camp. And then it's on, man. Het Nusblad, Kern, Brussels, Kern. I love that uh, Saturday and Sunday. That's a good block of racing. Can't come soon enough. No, I really can't. Forget about the skiing, Fred. Uh, okay. Well, moving on, uh, before we get to the second half of the show, I wanted to do a quick 
Chris Froome update. We haven't had a ton of news come out in the last week or so about Chris Froome and his salbutamol. I wonder how his holidays were. Case, oh man. Do you ever wonder about that? You're well, like, oh, he was probably in Monaco. It was probably really warm out. Yeah. Uh, just riding in shorts. Puts the damper on the festivities, yeah. though, doesn't it? Hmm. Real kind of a bummer. But Dane, the week before Christmas, you did a great interview about this case uh, and about salbutamol in general. You talked with Matthew Fedoric from the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, and he said he had some interesting takes on salbutamol and the, te- the tests around it and the way they go about sanctioning people. Because it sounds like USADA has never actually sanctioned someone for salbutamol. They've given out warnings and taken some results away, but there have been no bans. So, you know, who is Matthew Fedoric, and what did you guys talk about? Sure. Uh, Matthew Fedoric is a scientist at USADA. Um, you know, he's been working in this field for quite a while now, and, uh, you know, his his days are spent analyzing the science of, of doping and, and anti-doping efforts, so he certainly has some authority to talk on this subject. So I went to him to ask him for, you know, sort of, sort of his take on um, testing for salbutamol and, and the process of of uh, testing for salbutamol and also just a general kind of an explainer just to get a sense of, you know, so he could give me some information on this sort of thing. And one of the big takeaways for me was that there are these studies, recent studies that say it it might be possible to take the allowed amount of salbutamol, uh, albuterol here in the United States and be over the threshold, be over the allowable limit. You know, there's, there is some recent evidence that depending on a couple of factors, you can, you can puff the allowed amount, but, but still be uh, over the, the limit. The science is still, you know, kind of being developed and still going on. If you're Chris Froome, if you're Chris Froome's team, this could be a ray of hope. You know, this is this is what you're going to try to prove. You know, this is you're going to go to the laboratory, try to recreate this scenario that that Froome was in when he tested this way at the Vuelta, and hopefully, if you're Chris Froome, <laughs> you will be able to replicate the result that he returned during the Vuelta. That's his way of proving that, that he didn't do anything wrong to the anti-doping authorities. If he's not able to do that, well, he's going to find himself in a pretty big mess. Yeah, I thought that was interesting, too. I mean, this is a test for the excretion of a product. It's not a blood volume test. It's not like how much of this stuff is floating around inside of you. It's like how much stuff are you peeing out? And there's a huge difference there, which I, I guess I'd never really appreciated until reading more into this. And that is, you know, this can be impacted by dehydration. This can be impacted by all sorts of X factors about how much you are able to actually pee out. And so, yeah, this Danish study that you were referencing that said you could take the allowable limit and all of a sudden pee out way over the allowable limit. Um, you know, Danish pee study, Danish pee study, kind of like it, Good I one. mean, to me, it's really reminiscent of sort of the, like the asparagus test. Ugh, oh, gross. We don't go there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I was wondering if this scientist has done any sort of research in terms of this, you know, maybe it's an old, it's kind of like one of those truisms, but is it really like still puff, puff pass mm. or, or does that need to like be, you know, kind of debunked? I think it's definitely not puff, 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 puff. Puff pass. Pass. Pass back to the doctor to refill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I think is important to bring up here is that even if there is some evidence uh, in some recent studies that there is this possibility of being over the allowed limit, we're still talking about a number for Froome that is twice the allowed limit. And so it's not as if she's just a little bit over the threshold. I mean, he's going to have to prove that despite legally taking this drug, 
that he was way, way over the allowed limit. And yeah, so there's a ray of hope here if you're Chris Froome. But, you know, this is certainly not an easy matter of, oh, just popping over to the laboratory and, and cranking out this test that you know you're going to, you know you're going to be, uh, you know, passing as it were. He's got some work to do uh, to prove why he was so far above the limit. And that's a big deal. Uh, exactly. You know, Andrew Hood spoke with the lawyer of Diego Ulysses, who famously was banned for the same thing. And what Ulysses' lawyer said basically was they tried twice to get to the level that Ulysses had tested for in this, um, you know, in, in, in this test they do, the pharmacokinetic study. And he said they were not able to get there. You know, they tried all sorts of different things and, and, and in two different occasions, they were not able to replicate that level. So the fact that Froome was twice the limit, you know, that's, that's gonna be an uphill battle for him for sure. Yeah, three points off his license. Three points off the license and a ban and maybe loss of a Welta. Boy, we had some hot, hot takes come back from felonews.com readers over the weekend because uh, over the weekend, we put our Velo News Writer of the Year Award online. And now this is something that we had written about and voted on May, way earlier in the year. Yeah, the magazine, obviously, much longer lead time, gets yeah. published, and lo and behold, Chris Froome has this salbutamol scandal come up a- Yeah, the sal- after after all was said and done with this Writer of the Year we, award. We voted on the Writer of the Year. We wrote it in the final issue of 2017. That came out months ago. We put the story online, of course, after the salbutamol positive, put in some caveats, but... Uh, Twitter and Facebook exploded, which leads me to believe that Chris Froome is the most polarizing story of 2017 and 2018. It is our version of like, um, I don't know, Donald Trump or uh, American politics. It just seems like people are firmly one way or the other. I feel right like now. it's more of a deflate gate. Okay. Like yeah. the whole New England Patriots, the footballs being being too soft, that type of thing. Yeah, that's a very good comp because I did tend to notice that the people who were um, violently defending Froome all had names like Nigel and Wilbur. <laughs> and oh, now if you do see, it's not quite as truly bad as you would imagine it to be. And so Sky just, is, the, is the Patriots in this scenario? Yeah, Sky yes. is definitely Which is ironic Patriots. because, you know, British people actually fought against the Patriots in the Revolutionary War, so yeah. the tables have turned. And Sky fans are like Tommy from Quincy, just these awful Boston. Oh, sorry, can't let my get my football uh, get let my football takes seek into the Villainous Ooh, podcast. Careful. Uh, well, obviously the Froome story. We'll be continuing to look on that, do more reporting about it, and uh, wait for the next stuff to come out. So let's move on to the second half of the show. But first, uh, we've got to tell people again about Health IQ, sponsor of this week's episode of the Vel News Podcast. Health IQ is the life insurance company that works with healthy individuals, cyclists, runners, vegans. Right now, they have a great deal going on for listeners of the Vel News Podcast. Spencer, what is it again? That's right, Fred. Go to healthiq.com slash News. Get a free quote on life insurance. Uh, yeah, maybe it could be your New Year's resolution to get life insurance. That'd be nice. Take care of things. HealthIQ.com slash News is where you go for that. Yeah, Thanks that, to them for supporting the podcast. That's a way better resolution than just saying like, oh, I'm not going to eat chocolate ever again. Yeah. Who would? Come on. Let's be realistic. Go to, yoga, go to yoga four times a day. No one's doing that. Dane, any good New Year's resolutions? Oh, man, this is the, the least hot of hot takes, but I guess my resolution would just be to get back on the bike a little more because the last couple of months have just been a lot of cookie eating. 
but yeah, that's probably the least controversial New Year's resolution uh, of, of a cycling journalist that you're going to get. That's strong. Strong New Year's resolution. Well, keep, eat co- keep eating cookies, and maybe you can write a scandalous book about pro cycling. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, you know, and, and also, I think if I ride enough, you know, if I, if I get back into riding hard enough, then I can just keep eating the cookies. So I don't need feel, to resolve to stop eating cookies as long as I resolve for the to, fire. to ride harder. There you go. So, guys, I want us to talk about uh, a story that I wrote, a very selfish uh, episode of the Vela News podcast here. Uh, in the current magazine issue, which actually comes out next week, that is the January-February issue called The New Science of Climbing. It has a nice picture of Sepp Kuss on the cover. We have some great features in there about... Um, the mind, body, and spirit of cycling. Um, I have a story in there called Between Spirit and Sport, which looks at a group of riders who have formed a prayer group and Bible study within the domestic U.S. Peloton and who call on their uh, backgrounds with Christianity to help them through the tougher parts of the sport. Now, this was an interesting story for me to work on. I got the idea actually at this year's Tour of California when it was the night before the race and I was hanging out in the race motel and I saw these two guys who were there, um, Todd Hendrickson and Brian Furley. And they run this group called Athletes in Action, which is a um, religious sports group that's been around since the 1950s. They, they run the cycling ministry of it. And the night before the race, they're, you know we're all hanging out in this race motel in the lobby, chit-chatting. And then all of a sudden, some of the riders we were talking with bid adieu to everyone, and they walk into the hotel bar where it's quiet with Brian and with Todd, and I look in through the window, and they're, they're praying. And then they're talking about the race, and they're talking about the Bible and their religion, and they had this hour-long or so discussion about their faith and said goodbye to each other, went back to the race, and I was interested. I said, what, what's going on here? Um, I note to the listeners, I am not a religious person. I did not grow up with any religious faith in my life, but I was really interested in this Bible group within the pro peloton. So that's my preamble for talking about this story, because I was able to speak with a number of writers who were a part of this group, and the story they, stories they told me were really interesting, namely about the ways in which religion helps them through the tougher moments of pro cycling. So does anyone have a question for me about my story between spirit and sport? Fred, you know, one of the things that strikes me about this story is how it's a kind of a pretty big contrast to mainstream American sports, which is something you pointed out in the story. You think about all these scenes from any given whatever Friday Night Lights or, uh, I don't know, a, a high school movie about football or any any other sort of... It's a, it, There's always like the, the team sitting down to pray before the game or, or the athlete after whatever, winning the NBA championships, thanking God. That sort of thing makes me wonder... Is there something unique about cycling as a sport, here in the U.S. at least, that makes it a little less common, if not a little less friendly, for for people who are more outwardly religious? Yeah, I'd say that cycling, especially in the United States, is definitely a secular sport. You know, the riders that I talked with in Europe, especially in the Catholic countries, you know, uh, Flanders and Italy and Spain, said that, oh, well, religion is so intertwined, Catholicism especially, so intertwined with society at large that it is also intertwined with the lives of these cyclists and the teams. You know, maybe they're not saying organized prayers every day, but it's part of their lives. But here in the United States, 
United States, bike racing is definitely a secular sport. It's not like the NBA where riders are thanking God after the after every competition. It's not like the NFL where there are pre-competition prayers, where there's organized time to bring religion and Christianity into the race. Um, I spoke with a number of guys who raced in the domestic peloton in the 70s and 80s, and they said the same thing, that, you know, plenty of riders were religious or were Christian, but there was there were not pre-race prayers. There was nothing that was particularly organized. And I think there's a number of reasons for this. I think that the demographics that cycling tends to draw from in the United States may be a bit different, but I also just think that it is... It just is part of the sport in that it was never established to begin with, so therefore it never grew up with the tradition of it. Whereas if you follow things like, you know, the Fellowship for Christian Athletes and even Athletes in Action, these are groups that have had influence in football and baseball and basketball going back for decades. So for instance, Jacques Boyer, who's a, I believe he's a Seventh-day Adventist, told me that you know he knew plenty of riders in the domestic peloton back in the 80s who were Christian, in fact, he's, and I think Michael Ingeman said he didn't know one writer who was an atheist, but talk about religion just didn't really happen. There weren't organized times to have it. So therefore, the sport in the States evolved without a real tie to religion. I'm kind of curious. I don't know if, if Hendrickson talked about this or if anyone else on the European side of things talked about this, whether this initiative that, you know, that Hendrickson is kind of spearheading, I know you mentioned that that religion is sort of intertwined with uh, cycling in Europe. But I'm, I'm sort of curious, is there any effort to spread this initiative uh, to Europe, or, or does it already exist over there, uh, this sort of mission? A lot of the writers that you mentioned and quote in the article are American, and, and I'm, so I guess I'm just kind of curious, uh, how does this sort of, you know, does this sort of ministry uh, already exist, or is there an effort to kind of get this going over in Europe? Well, it's interesting. So Henriksen and Brian Furley, they said that this past year they did start going over to Europe, but still primarily working with American riders over there. So they went to the classics. I think they went to maybe the Giro and had pre-race prayers and met with some of these guys and gals during the races. But I think there's a big, there is a big difference here in the fact the reason that this group exists is because of the secular nature of cycling in the United States. I actually don't know if a group like this would exist in, let's say, Spain, because Catholicism is already so intertwined into people's lives. It's like, hey, why are we having a spiritual group? I'm already spiritual. I pray every day. You know, why are we setting, why are we making a special group? You know, religion is already so in intertwined into my life, where it's like, in order to have a group of people band together, to talk about religion. It's almost like you needed the secular outside world of the sport in order for something like that to happen. That's ge my general sense. You know, the one thing, Fred, that stands out to me, though, that's a little bit in opposition to what you're saying is toward the end, you, you talk about uh, a writer who's a Tunisian, actually, Rafa Shuti, mm -hmm. if I'm saying that right. And he's actually Muslim. And one of the things you got from him for the story is that uh, there's parts of Europe, for instance, with him, he went to Europe car in France, and he found France's more secular society to be a little bit unfriendly to his 
fairly public stance as being a Muslim. I spoke to two Muslim writers for this piece. I spoke to Adrian Yonshuti, from, uh, who was on Dimension Data at the team. He is Rwandan. And then, yeah, I spoke to Rafa, who's Tunisian and raced for Europe Car and Fasa Bordalo. And he said that in Italy, when he was on Fasa Bordalo, he loved being there. And people would ask him about his religion all the time. They'd have discussions about it around the dinner table with his teammates and just Italian people in general. And then he said when he moved to France and went to Europe Car, that it was just a bummer. He really liked where he lived and the terrain and training, but he said, yeah, from a religious standpoint, it was it was not that much fun because of the secular nature of society and the team. It was like people didn't want to talk about religion and they didn't want really to know about his religion. And so when he would have to, you know, pray five times a day or do any of the other things associated with being a Muslim, he, try, he tried to keep it secret. And he actually said that he went out to find a mosque when he was in France because he felt like he needed community for his own religion. You know, another interesting element of this is that, with, especially with these American riders, I did hear a story repeated over and over again, which was, you know, a rider who was raised with religion in their life, and then they kind of deviated from it in their teens and 20s, and then came back to it because of cycling and because of something that had happened to them in cycling, specifically a tough moment, whether it was a terrible injury, a sickness, some period of bad results. It was sort of like the hardship associated with cycling helped steer them back to their faith, and they then got more invested in their faith and then used their faith to help them deal with the ups and downs of cycling. You know, something that we all know, especially in North American cycling, it's like, man, these careers are fleeting. You know, having a job, having a position in the international peloton or even the domestic peloton, it's really hard to do. It's the sport is always looking to keep, to kick people out. It seems like with, you know, shrinking teams or contracts that suck or injuries, et cetera. And so there's all of this anxiety associated with being a pro cyclist. And in this issue in general, we wrote about that, you know, Hoodie wrote a great feature about the anxiety associated with crashing and injury and how a lot of these riders are now seeking out advice from sports psychologists to help them deal with the uh, mental side of the sport. And the feedback that I got from some of these riders was that Athletes in Action and Todd and Brian and religion in general was sort of playing that same role, knowing that there's all these bad things that can happen to you as a pro cyclist. You can get fired, your team can get dissolved, you can break your leg. And it's sort of having this faith in religion is the one thing that keeps them from basically being depressed all the time or like going down some terrible downward spiral. Yeah. And in your article, Chad Haig is a great example of that, having that terrible crash with his team in 2016 when the a car drove into the oncoming lane and they uh, they were all pretty much injured from it. And then also his father died um, a little later that year, I believe. Mm -hmm. And that got me wondering, did Todd give you some examples of some specific ways or things he talks about with people like that when he's trying to help them through difficult time? Yeah, you know, the one thing he kept coming back to was actually using religion to shift your identity away from solely identifying as a pro cyclist to identifying as a Christian. And that was really weird for me to hear. I was like, wait, what a second, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, it's all about identity. You know, it's like when you identify yourself as a pro cyclist first, 
it builds all this anxiety into your life where it's like, oh, you know, I could lose my job and then I'm not a pro cyclist anymore. I could get injured and then I'm not a pro cyclist anymore. This is something I've worked my whole life for and it could be taken away from me at any moment. And plus, he said a lot of these guys sort of struggle with their place within the universe, which, you know, I can identify with being sort of in your early to mid-20s and you're involved in this niche sport. That, Fred, you're not in your early to mid-20s. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go. We go back in time on that one. But, you know, being sort of being in your mid-20s and, and you're involved in this niche sport and nobody over here stateside really knows about it or cares too much about it. And yet that's what you identify with. And so Todd was saying what he tries to get these guys to do is, hey, you know, your self-worth as a person isn't you and your identity as a cyclist. Your self-worth as a person is you and your identity as a Christian. And that's, you know, helping people out, going on missions, like doing these things, things in the name of your religion. And therefore, if cycling gets taken away from you, if cycling is gone from your life, it's not going to be this huge, drastic moment of depression. Um, and I find that to be really interesting because, again, you know, I just remember even being a reporter around cycling in my mid-20s and being like, oh, my God, what is my place in the universe? I'm at these bike races where there's nobody, and I'm writing these stories that I don't even know if anyone's reading. And, yeah. We need a uh, cycling journalist in action. Um, yeah, well, we need a mission for that, I guess. Yeah, yeah mission for cycling journalists. That's the next step. <laughs> Well, again, you know, the name of the story is called Between Spirit and Sport. I interviewed a ton of different writers for it. Chad Haga, Jesse Anthony, Ali Dragu. Ben King, Greg ben Daniel. King. Two national champions, so they must be doing something right. Yeah, and it was, uh, it was a real fun story to work on, so check it out in the next issue of Velo News. All right, guys, before we get out of here for the weekend, we have our big shining question for the week. I think we'll probably get back to podiums and off the fronts, off the backs, ask Cat Threes a little later. But we're going to close with, with a big question, and it's a newsy one because, oh, man, a new story that came out over the holiday break is that basically every guy on Movistar thinks he should be the Tour de France leader. Everyone does. I mean, do you think the mechanic thinks he should be leading the squad for the Tour de France, too? Why not? Yeah. Give it a shot. Give him a shot. So my question to you guys is, who should Movistar's team leader be for this year's Tour de France, and why? Hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm feeling pretty strongly about Nairo Quintana being the deserving leader for the Tour de France. Uh, I think about 18 months ago, he's the guy that everybody's talking about as the big challenger to Chris Froome. He had one kind of down year, a down year in which he did finish on the podium in the Giro, by the way, uh, when he tried to pull off the Giro Tour double. And yeah, he failed, but I don't think that suddenly disqualifies him from being the most qualified, the, the clearest leader, G GC leader at, at Movistar. I think Landa had a great year in 2017. I think he's a very talented rider, but for me, Quintana has proven that he is up to snuff of challenging Froome and the, and the rest of the big contenders. He's in the prime of his career. I still need to see a little bit more from Landa before dubbing him uh, Movistar's top GC mm. guy. Nah, I disagree. I say just send Quintana to Tour de Suisse or something like that. Just have him, have him do those races, and then we put Mika Landa in charge of Tour de France. You know why? Because he used to be Froome's teammate and get in his head. He's going to know what Froome's thinking, and he's going to play a little mind games with him or something. Plus, he's got that really scary 
dark countenance that it's just just kind of he's got a good villain look to him. Yeah, like plus it. maybe he's a plant, you know. Oh, yes. What if but that's that's I guess that's the scary part. Oh, about, you think he's a mole? He's, he could be a mole. He's next just feeding level info. Games. Yeah, feeding Whoa. info back to Sky. He's a total plant. He's a Manchurian Whoa. candidate at Movistar. I'm disagreeing with all of you and I think that Alejandro Valverde should be the team leader because I believe in a little thing called dad watts. You know what that is? When you have a kid, you get extra watts. You don't have to train as much. Our very own Chris Case is a uh, great example of dad watts. Uh, Valverde has four kids. So guess how many dad watts that is? Four times what So many is. dad watts. <laughs> and if Valverde does anything like he did last year, he's just going to continue to get stronger well into his late 30s and early 40s. I think he is. Isn't he already in his 40s? I think he's in his mid-50s at this point. Huh. Weird. Yeah, it's weird how he's so so good still. Valverde, God. Strange. Just the gift that keeps on giving. wonder why that is. Yeah, weird. Dad watts are a thing. Well, we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on bellnews.com. Subscribe to the Bell News Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Bell News on Facebook at facebook.com slash bellnewsmagazine. And follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash bellnews. The Bell News Podcast is produced by Bell News, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the Bell News Podcast are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you the Brooklyn Blue Glue blowout playing the Bernard Purdy classic, Soul Drunk. Soul Drunk.